according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 5 will be our starting text this morning. Luke chapter 5. Episode number 11 in the Galilean ministry, the disciples defended via parable. I ought to be able to wrap this up today and then move on to John chapter 5 one week from today. Before we begin our study, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for being so gracious towards each one of us. We thank You for the opportunity we have to live another day, to serve You, to learn from Your Word, to conduct our lives in a manner that glorifies our Savior Jesus Christ and is pleasing in Your sight. We do ask for Your hand and blessing upon our study today, and we thank You again for this privilege and blessing in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 5. An episode that we began last week and covered the first uh, four points of study. We'll cover uh, five, six, and seven this morning. We uh, ran out of time, though, as we were winding down the last of the subpoints under main point four. We'll notice just simply through reading here, beginning with verse 33, they said to him, and so it's a continuation of what preceded, and what preceded was some discontent, some grumbling, some disapprovals. And the uh, grumbling we observe up in verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So we realize that there is some discontent. It's interesting, the, the popularity is growing, the fame is growing, the crowds are growing, so much so that the Lord even has trouble appearing anywhere publicly, and he started now to sneak from city to city, from town to town, not letting people know where he's going, so to speak. We've learned that. We've observed that over the past few weeks. But at the same time that's happening, this other discontent is growing. And the discontent we're being seen uh, not only here at the hands of the Pharisees and the scribes, but it's starting to spread now. And in verse uh, 33, they're they're bringing the disciples of John into their uh, discontent. Because they say to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. So they're finding allies and they're finding ways that they can start to manipulate and they can start to intrude. As a matter of fact, in the Mark parallel to this, in Mark chapter 2, we recognize that not only were the Pharisees using those disciples as an illustration, but the Pharisees even had some of those disciples present to uh, participate in, uh, in this line of questioning. As uh, we read in, Luke, in Mark 2.18, uh, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So it appears that even some of John's disciples are now being brought uh, into this attitude of discontent. And it's always remarkable to see what happens when those who are trying to be difficult choose to start recruiting others to uh, assist them in their difficulty, see. (laughs) And it's uh, interesting the way that works. Returning now to Luke 5, Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? And this is 
the old answer a question with a question uh, methodology, and the Lord employs it so it can't always be wrong when you use such a tactic. Uh, the Lord uses that tactic here, and his question is in fact very instructive because if they spend the time to think through the doctrine that uh, is contained in that question, then they'll have to start an answer, well, who's the bridegroom? Who are the friends of the bridegroom? Why are we not friends of the bridegroom? Because we're not engaged in this activity. And, and who is the bride anyway? See, some of these questions that they'd be left trying to answer, some of them can't be answered until such time as mystery doctrine is unfolded and, and the church is then revealed. But all that aside, he's answering their accusatory question with a patient teaching question. And I find that to be extraordinary because we oftentimes come into conflict ourselves, don't we? We come into opposition in so many different ways. And yet a passage I keep coming back to uh, is the one that cautions for patience and gentleness, uh, correcting those who are in opposition. Second Timothy chapter two verses 24 through 26, because we, this appears to be the very methodology that, uh, that uh, is being used. You're looking at a blue screen, aren't you? You wondered, how long are we going to be looking at this blue screen? Well, probably until somebody says something. There we go. All right. Reading now from 2 Timothy chapter 2, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. That includes those that are stabbing you in the back. There's no footnote there that says, be kind to all that are kind to you first. No, it says, be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. Okay, that's a tough one to deal with because, you know, if they're, if they're accusing you and disapproving of everything and attacking you and bringing in allies to help spread the attack, you'd think, well, hey, let's just fight fire with fire and be done with it. No, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. And, you know, they, they have all these disapproving questions and the Lord's replying with a question of his own. And yet it's one that is a, a question of patient instruction with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Now, there is a bit of a contrast or a bit of a context difference between the Lord's example we're looking at in Luke 5 and what Paul's dealing with here in 2 Timothy, because in the case of these Pharisees, they are literally a brood of vipers. They're not held captive. They are willing participants in the satanic activity, citizens, as it were, of the domain of darkness. In the Timothy context, this is giving instructions to a pastor saying, you know what, some of your adversaries, some of your enemies may in fact be believers in your church, and uh, in which case they're captives they're prisoners of war in the angelic conflict and they're being made to serve the adversary uh through this deception and that's why you want to be gentle with them you want to be patient you want to teach them you want to hopefully through accurate teaching and bringing about a change of thinking be able to win your brother back be able to say you know what let's look at the truth all right so now here's the Lord, and we return back to Luke 5 now and see. He's just answering a question. And then he gives them more teaching, and then he gives them a parable. And uh, it's interesting how in stages he does that, because the, the question was designed to provoke thinking. The, the additional teaching in verse 35 was designed to be a follow-up to that thinking. And then it's interesting in verses 36 and following, when he goes to parable mode, that... Uh, appears to go beyond the immediate question and start to do lessons where his disciples can start to learn. All right. Because the, the, the Pharisees weren't in a position to learn from parables. And we'll see that coming up of a whole realm of 
parable teaching coming up, and we'll break down for you what is the purpose of a parable. All right, first of all, the questioners in this episode are the disciples of John the Baptist, the scribes and Pharisees, and all of the above, according to the three different recorded sources that we have. Matthew records the questions as coming from these disciples of John the Baptist. Luke records the questions as coming from the scribes and the Pharisees. And Mark includes all of the above, both groups being present and both groups involved in the questioning. Let me ask you a question. Uh, if if uh, all three of my ch- or all four of my children say come and they're all present, they're all standing there and they've chosen one of them to be the spokesman. Right. Maybe uh, they've lined up Zoe to ask the question. But the other three are standing right there in the immediate area and right behind her or next to her. Or they're right around. But they might have had Zoe be the spokesman. Right. In other words, they planted the question in her. And the question comes out, okay? And maybe it's a question that just by virtue of it being asked is, is pretty obvious that it's not coming from her own intelligence. <laughs> it's not, it's, she uses a word that she probably shouldn't know or it just came from a perspective that really you can tell the older kids are the ones that put her up to it because they want something too, right? But they worked it with, so that the baby can ask the question, maybe that'll get the biggest sympathy. So, okay, you see how this works? Now, can I say Zoe asked the question? Sure. Can I say that all four of them asked the question? I can say that legitimately because they were all present, even though it was only one uh, mouth, one lips that were flapping, one set of vocal cords that were vibrating. I can legitimately say that they were all asking the question. Can I say that it was the older ones asking the question? Sure, I can, even though they used the youngest one as their minion, as their lackey. All right. Of course I can. And so that's what we're observing here. There's you can look at this in three different ways, and all of them are true and accurate as far as they are being recorded from those particular perspectives. Secondly, the legalistic disapproval of Jesus's eating habits is beginning to spread. Note, we, in the previous episode, it was the scribes and Pharisees that had the disapproval because he was eating with the wrong kind of people. He was in the wrong homes. He was not, uh, obviously, he could not be holy because he was associating with these tax collectors and these sinners. And so the approach was entirely one of negativity. It was one of disapproval. We want to be very cautious with that. And we're ending up with a a flawed logic, which I hope to again illustrate here this morning. But that disapproval begins to spread. Let's stop and consider what have we examined from the standpoint of perasmos, temptation, and dokime, testing. See, or if you want the verbs, perazzo, temptation, and dokimazzo, evaluation. See, the one is always geared for disapproval, whereas the other is always geared for approval. And I hope we can realize that we're getting it from a number of different angles. We're getting it here in life of Christ. Lord's also giving it to us in the book of James on Sunday nights. And so clearly uh, our assembly is going to be accountable for applying this doctrine or applying these principles. See, and um, just by way of excitement here, we can look at James chapter one. And I get to be a substitute teacher Sunday night for uh, that James class. So this is what I intend to build on. But in verse 2, they're called 
trials, or they're called temptations, perasmas, singular, perasmoi in the plural. And when you encounter them, you might, you know, encounter is kind of an interesting word. It's like crashing into them when you're overwhelmed by them, when they're loading you down. You could say you encountered a brick wall when you hit it at 500 miles an hour. Was that an encounter? Well, sure, it was an encounter. But let's, let's get a little bit more descriptive about it. When you encounter various trials, in other words, when you're buried, they're called trials in verse 2, and then the Lord turns right around and calls them tests in verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so if the adversary intends something for your trial, he intends it for your disapproval, if God permits it, if permissive will says, okay, you can do that, like he did with Satan, and Satan wanted to uh, attack Job. Satan did all that hoping for Job's downfall, hoping for Job's disapproval. And God said, all right, permission granted, go right ahead. See, when the moment God did that, it still continues to be a temptation as far as Satan's concerned. But when God allows it to happen, it becomes a test, a docime or a docimazo test as far as God is concerned. And so... Whereas we tend to use those terms separately with distinction, we need to. I think we also need to use those terms uh, synonymously because they're really flip sides of the coin in many cases. Satan's using it as a temptation, but what's the other side of the coin? God's using it as a test. And whereas Satan wants it to be our downfall, God is going to use it to be our exaltation, to be the seal of approval, to demonstrate, you know what? Grace works. Faith works. Grace works every time. You can't lose with grace. And so... These are the sort of things that we can look to and we can claim uh, the, the, right here in this, in this episode. The, the, they're coming to him hoping to demonstrate disapproval. And God the Father is using this very episode to demonstrate approval. That Jesus Christ is faithful. He's ministering as a son. He's ministering as a steward. He's proclaiming good news to those who need it. To, uh, healing to those who are sick as a physician, so to speak. And they're the ones that need salvation. They're the ones that need the gospel. So we're finding this played out here in an in uh, illustration. And we're finding the doctrinal side of that coming to us on Sunday nights in the book of James. So I hope to, uh, I hope to expand upon that here coming up and uh, be able to illustrate that as well. Now, so it's starting to spread. Keep that in mind, the, the disapproval, the negative, the criticism, the discouragements, they will spread. That's the nature of it. Carnality will spread. That's why you want to keep short accounts. That's why you want to confess your sins, get back into fellowship, and not allow those cycles of, of mental attitude sin to multiply and grow and spread and go beyond where, uh, where they need to. Point three is probably the most obvious point you've ever been given. <laughs> right? You say, man been a pastor 10 years and you figured that one out what's going on fasting and feasting don't mix well yeah you know you can't do both at the same time it'd be like staying awake and sleeping how do you do that you can't do both at the same time they're mutually exclusive if you're going to fast fast if you're going to feast feast you can't do both Ecclesiastes 3, 4, there's a time for both, and uh, they're not the same time, <laughs> okay? It's one or the other, and you've got to figure it out. Now, under this, the legalistic fasting that we were looking at was a supposed mark of righteousness. And this is where the flawed logic comes in. 
because they were using themselves as the gold standard. You know, this is what we're doing. You're not doing it. Therefore, what's wrong with you? Okay. That summarizes this whole chapter. This is what we do. And since you're not doing it, what's wrong with you? Okay. And the whole accusation is, as we read it right here in verse 33, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. Okay. And the Lord could reply, uh, yes. <laughs> is there a question there? What's your point? What are you trying to say? Because there really is no question there. It's just an inflammatory statement. Your disciples eat and drink. Okay. But he's patient. Gives them a question back. Now this flawed logic of legalism, since Jesus and his disciples didn't fast, they must not be righteous. So that's the conclusion they come to. Because this is what we do, and we're obviously holy and righteous and great in God's sight. We're his favorite. You know, you can't do better than us because we're the best. So if you don't do what we're doing, something's wrong with you. In fact, you need to be corrected because clearly if you don't measure up to our standard, you're wrong. Okay, it's the way it always works. That's why we have to be cautious. That's why grace always wants to examine yourself, look at what you're doing, examine why you're doing it. And then at the same time, allow them to do likewise and that's the the key we're going to get into we've been dealing with it in first corinthians in terms of stumbling blocks the one who eats meat sacrificed to idols can do so for the glory of jesus christ the one who does not eat meat sacrificed to idols does so for the glory of jesus christ the one who consumes alcoholic beverages the one who does not consume alcoholic beverages the verse says whether you eat or drink in other words a or b either one can be done for the glory of jesus christ let all that you do be done for his glory. So we want to learn these lessons and not plunge into this because particularly Bible churches, I think, are vulnerable to the approach that says, well, you know, we have doctrine. We have categorical teaching. We have verse by verse. We've got, you know, our pastor teaches us from Hebrew and Greek. So we obviously are doing everything right and they've got to line up with what we're doing. Now, slow down. <laughs> the moment any believer says that, well, we're the pinnacle, we're the standard, They've just plunged into the into the areas of pride and arrogance that lead before the fall. All right. Point four, then let's deal with this fasting and feasting. Let's start with fasting. Fasting was featured in the Old Testament. This is where we ran out of time. You know, there's a difference between being featured and being commanded. And hopefully that uh, that came across as well. It was featured. And that's a huge difference. See, I might come along and say, well, hey, you know something? Polygamy was featured in the Old Testament. Ooh, that, I don't have Ann Thunderberg here this morning. That really would send her up a wall, right? That was the biggest thing that always looks like nails on a chalkboard, this polygamy thing. Well, I could say polygamy was featured in the Old Testament. Therefore, a feature of Austin Bible Church is going to be, you know, a pastor uh, gets to marry six women and deacons can marry uh four women max um you know let's just develop a theology based upon something that was featured in the old testament okay you see the problem with that 
Uh, other things were featured in the Old Testament. Do we, do we take those as commands? Do we take those as normative or authorized or even appropriate for the dispensation of the church? Well, let's make a big distinction between what's commanded and what's featured. And when it is featured, let's consider the context when it is featured. When does fasting appear? And under what conditions do believers decide this is something that should be happening? And so we started to do that last week in the period of the judges, uh, in the period of the kings. And that's the example of David fasting as he was under divine discipline, as uh, his adultery and murder was exposed. And as this child was on the verge of death, the child eventually did die. And during that period of time, David was fasting and praying. Uh, you'll also notice that that fast came to an end. Right. Very abruptly, as soon as the child was dead, David said, well, there's no more reason for this fast to take place. Which is what the Lord's saying here. Uh, there's no reason for fasting because this is not the time for that. That time is coming up. The principles in Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, uh, fasting and prayers could be a corporate exercise in seeking God's will and favor. And what an opportunity. Of course, there's occasion for individual feast uh, fasting as well certainly but the corporate nature of it where it is actually a called fast where spiritual leadership will proclaim a fast proclaim a solemn assembly where <clears throat> the spiritual leadership in the case of the old testament the high priest the priesthood the king whoever a prophet perhaps like samuel says here's what we need to do as a corporate body we need to get real serious about this we need to have a devoted dedicated prayer Ministry, And we need to do this for 24 hours, 48 hours, three days a week. We need to proclaim a fast and all of us need to be united together in this endeavor. See, and you have the examples of it there. Now, were those commanded by Mosaic law? No. Were they commanded to do so by the word of the Lord? No. But this was a voluntary activity that initiated by spiritual leadership that said, you know what? We need to get serious about our um, about our prayer life. We need to get serious about seeking God's will. All right. So hopefully the voluntary nature of that is uh, is uh, is spotlighted. And and uh, it's the same thing we observed in first Corinthians chapter seven, uh, where the marital abstinence. Where it says in verse 5, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time. And this is not commanded. It's not ordered. No one has to do this. But it's saying, you know what? This is something you might choose to do. Why? So that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again. So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And this is the opportunity that for marital abstinence where a husband and wife recognize, you know what? We need to get our prayer life back on track. We need to get our souls back together again. Our souls haven't been together in ages, see. And so all the things there. But again, in verse 6, I say this by way of concession, not of command. And that's the nature of it when we observe fasting that's featured in the Old Testament. It is a voluntary thing that is done when it appears to be a good idea to do so. Likewise, in Zechariah 7, these items could be phony. A fast could be just a, a phony show. So could a feast be a phony show. Fasting and feasting could be a phony exercise where you're going through a ritual, but there's no reality. 
Zechariah 7, verses 5 and 6, he asks, why are you doing it? See, why are you going to Bible class? Is it for the Lord or is it for you? Is it for a human being to observe? Are you showing off? Are you trying to make a good impression? Why are you doing it? See, you know, a guy decides he's going to get real religious and he's going to go to church and all he's really doing is trying to impress the girl that said she wouldn't date him unless he came to church. So he goes to church and acts like he likes being there and acts like he's learning something. And and uh, then she's all impressed. Ooh, this boy's got spiritual priorities. And then lo and behold, well, that wasn't really it. Zechariah 7, verse 5 and 6. Say to all the people of the Lord and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these 70 years... Was it actually for me that you fasted? Who were you doing it for? Were you truly serving the Lord or were you doing it for yourself? Did you have your own selfishness in view? Likewise, on the feasting side of things, when you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves? Do you not drink for yourselves? I mean, I think unbelievers can eat and drink. I mean, you can feast and pig out and drink whatever and have a good time. Well, unbelievers can do that. Why are you doing it? Are you doing it to celebrate the Lord's glory? Are you thankful for an abundant harvest? Are you taking free will offerings to the Lord? Are you feasting with the Levites? Sharing your bounty with them? Celebrating, allowing them to teach you the word of God? Having true fellowship? Or are you just throwing a party and stuffing yourself? What are you doing? So it could be a phony exercise as well. Finally, sub-point E, the one where we ran out of time. Jesus taught on fasting with a primary application for kingdom law. Join me in Matthew 6, and we'll look at it. Matthew chapter 6. Now, this will ultimately be featured in the millennial kingdom, but the principle is such that we can relate it to our Old Testament passages. We can relate it to our New Testament passages, and we can clearly we can draw an application ourselves during the stewardship of the church. Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And this uh, principle does not apply strictly to fasting because we've uh, seen it already played out in giving in verse 2 and in praying in verse 7. So it's, it's the same principle all three times. You know, in giving, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you. <laughs> you know, don't ring a bell and blow a horn and say, hey, look at me, look what I'm giving. Right? Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. In other words, this is, are you doing this for the Lord? Are you doing this for your own image? As it says, these hypocrites in the synagogues, on the streets, so they may be honored by men. You know, you're back here at the grace box and, and you're in danger of actually putting something in there and nobody noticing. And so you, you know, you ring a bell or you wave and say, hey, look at this, look at this. And I'm putting my five bucks in here, you know, whatever I'm doing. Likewise, in prayer, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues on street corners so they may be seen by men. And it's remarkable when it says both verse two and verse five here say, truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. In other words, that's what they're getting. They have the reward in full. There will be nothing for them at the judgment seat of Christ because what they're getting here and now in terms of human approbation, that's all they're getting, right? That's all they're going to get. Nothing follows. It's like it's a term for a receipt. There's your receipt. That's all you're getting. They have the reward in full. We have it again in verse 16 in the context of fasting. They have their reward in full. That is being noticed by men. Verse 16, whenever you fast, 
And you'll note it's not a command. They're not ordered to, but there might be occasions and it seems appropriate and you decide you're going to do this to get your prayer life on track or uh, you've got a crisis going on or something you're struggling with. You've got adult children that are doing things or you've got something else going on and it just... You just you sit down you, with your husband or your wife and you say, you know what, we need, to, we need to get serious about this. And so you choose amongst yourselves or what have you that says, you know what, we're going we're gonna to knuckle down in our prayer life here. But that's between you and the Lord. Nobody else needs to know about it. Nobody else should know about it. It says, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. In other words, they neglect their appearance so they will be noticed by men. Somebody looks at you and says, man, you look awful. Oh, it's okay. I'll be fine. Lord's going to take care of me. I'm just fasting. Right? It'll be fine. I'll live. I'm going on three days now. Got 37 more to go. I'm going to do 40 days and 40 nights like Moses did or like Jesus did. Thanks for asking. Check up on me again tomorrow. See how miserable I can look by the end of the week. All right. No. In fact, they shouldn't even know. It says, wash when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face. You should look as best as you possibly can. No one should know. So that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. See, that's when it says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. This is how you lay up those treasures in heaven. By just privately, secretly serving, giving it to the glory of Jesus Christ, leaving it in the Father's hands, saying, Father, reward this as you will, when you will. That's how you store up treasures in heaven. But when you're doing it for things here on earth, when you're doing it so people can be impressed with how holy you are, well, that's all the reward you're going to get is the impressing human beings. Okay? Most of whom are going to hell anyway. So why are you trying to impress them? That's what the Pharisees were totally caught up in, impressing human beings with how holy they were. And that's why when they get to the great white throne judgment and trying to impress the Lord, 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 did we not do this? Did we not do that? They had a whole long list of things they did. But he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And the circumstances that are attached there. Now, the uh, Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible has a good article on fasting. I wanted to share that with you. This should just come up like a hyperlink. Maybe. There it is. What is fasting? Eating sparingly or abstaining from food altogether, either from necessity or desire. And you could, there's different forms of it. Some, you know, just abstain from food but still consume water, still consume liquids. Others fast during the daylight hours, but then uh, after sundown, then they can. Uh, break that fast in the evenings that's that was a traditional pattern for the jews in the old testament that is likewise the current pattern of uh, muslims around the world observing ramadan they just don't eat while the sun's up when the sun goes down then they stuff themselves all right that's a form of fasting okay or it could be total uh in medical terms fasting is the detoxification of the body all right who cares about medical uh spiritual fasting Entails setting aside activities as well as reducing the intake of food and replacing these activities with the exercise of prayer and preoccupation with spiritual concerns. That's what we're dealing with. The preoccupation with spiritual concerns. The whole point is to set aside everything, even things that are normal like eating and like 
marital relations and other things and you just set aside those normal day-to-day life kind of things and now you're focused on the spiritual realm all right the new testament word which is translated fasting literally means one who has not eaten one who is empty three types of fast are generally recognized normal in which there is no and we talked about this partial where you have uh, limited than absolute in the old testament the fast was regarded as an act of self-renunciation designed to mollify God's wrath and move him to act in a gracious disposition. You've got to be careful with that. You've got to be careful because that appears like somehow our activity will be an influence. Our activity is going to tip the scales. Okay? And I don't like the way that's worded. In times of emergency, the people fasted to persuade God to spare them from impending calamity. Now, some of these are the are the uh, same examples I gave you, uh, Judges 20:26, where they had that warfare that was going on there. First um, Samuel 7:6, they fasted on that day and they said, "There we have sinned against the Lord." And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. But I would dispute these these scripture examples that are being given for us here in this encyclopedia aren't exactly saying what the encyclopedia says they're supposed to be saying. Are these people trying to mollify God? Are they trying to influence him to take action or are they humbling themselves and and accepting his judgment? You know, when it says Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah, that means they're just simply humbling themselves and laying themselves at, at God's mercy and accepting whatever that judgment is. See, the biggest thing about fasting is or, or any humility before the throne of grace is recognizing that we don't earn and deserve anything anyway. So whatever he gives us, he has every right to give us. And let's, what we're praying for in our preparation is work in me to accept whatever judgment you're going to give. See? And that's the purpose there, the humility purpose in terms, of, uh, in terms of fasting. Individuals fasted in the hope that God would liberate them from trouble. There's some scriptures there as well. Fasting was regarded as a concomitant to prayer to assure that God would answer the prayers. And there you go. It is the concomitant. There's a fancy word. That means you're doing it at the same time. At the same, You're not just fasting. You're not just starving. You're not just grumbling and saying, oh, I'm hungry. When can I eat again? But it's coinciding with an intensified prayer life. See, the real amazing thing about Matthew 4, where the Lord's fasting for 40 days, it was only then that he began to become hungry because the intensity of his prayer life was such he didn't notice the hunger while the fasting was taking place. Throughout the Old Testament, fasting is associated with a mournful attitude of importuning God to aid the supplicant. Regular fasts were usually for one day, morning to evening, with food permitted at night. And they give examples of it there. In fact, uh, that was one of those fasts that uh, uh, Saul had called and Joshua didn't know about it. So Joshua started to eat some honey during the day and then got in trouble with his dad for... Or Jonathan, yeah. Did I say Joshua? Jonathan for uh, violating Saul's order by eating during the day. Mordecai called for a three-day fast. Prayer meetings specified to support Esther. She went in to appear before the king. There was a seven-day fast at Saul's death. Moses, 40 days on Sinai. Daniel, for three weeks prior to receiving the visions that he received there in chapter 10. Down here in what I wanted to highlight. In general, in the Old Testament, fasting was abused 
All right. Which is why we have the rebuke that we already read in Zechariah, which is why we find it turned into the perversion it was by the time we get to the New Testament into what the Pharisees had adopted and made a part of their practice. Instead of a sincere act of self-renunciation and submission to God, fasting became an externalized as an empty ritual in which a pretense of piety was presented as a public image. But all it was was external. Hence, the prophets cry out against the callousness of such hypocrisy. Jeremiah records Yahweh as saying, Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. Jeremiah 14 and verse 12. It doesn't say he can't. It says he's choosing not to. It says, I am not going to listen to their cry. When they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I am not going to accept them. Rather, I am going to make an end of them by the sword, famine, and pestilence. Is God impressed with external ritual? Is he, stressed, is he impressed with something phony? Not at all. He sees right through it. In fact, it ignites judgment quicker than anything. Also, Isaiah 58, 1 through 10. The setting for the New Testament understanding of fasting lies in the development of the rabbinic tradition that grew out of the period between the Testaments. And it describes how this uh, took place. Um, during which fasting became the distinguishing mark of the pious Jew even though it was largely still ritualistic. In other words, that became the standard. Pharisees did it. They must be pious. Others didn't. They weren't as pious. The disciples of John did it. They must be pious. This became the standard. Vows were confirmed by fasting. You ever read the book of Tobit? Tobit 7 and verse 12. Remorse and penitence were accompanied by fasting. Fourth Esdras. You ever read that? You probably don't read these apocryphal books. They are... Not biblical. They're not God-breathed. They're not inspired. But they do testify to what the religious practices were, what they were like during the, the two testaments, between Old Testament and New Testament. Prayer was supported by fasting, 1 Maccabees 3.47. Special fast days were observed, some, voluntar some voluntarily imposed, 2 Maccabees, 4th Esdras, and so forth. This developed into a rabbinic tradition in which fasting was viewed as meritorious. Fasting was viewed as meritorious. In other words, it, was, it deserved something. It, it earned a reward. It was meritorious. Fasting had merit. And God would look at that and it deserved blessing. See, See how evil that is? Grace says that it's all non-meritorious. Everything we do is, is grace. This says, no, 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 fasting, that's meritorious. You can earn favor through fasting. And therefore became the primary act demonstrating piety. It was, however, a false piety consisting mostly of the externals of fastidious observance of fast days, both public and private. With the exception of ascetic groups such as the disciples of John the Baptist, the prevailing mood of fasting when Jesus appeared on the scene was one of mournful sadness, an obligatory necessity, a self-imposed requirement to produce the dis discipline of self-denial. And then it goes on and talks about how he encountered it and exactly what we're teaching here. All right. Then the Sermon on the Mount. The context of fasting is prayer. It should conform to the same conditions as prayer. Unostentatious quietness before God arising out of gratitude, expressing thanksgiving, grounded in faith as a means of spiritual growth. I enjoyed that closing paragraph as it summarizes what it's all about. 
unostentatious quietness. What a blessing. All right. I wanted to share that with you this morning. Now, point five. Fasting was inappropriate for the dispensation of Israel, age of the incarnation. Fasting was inappropriate for the dispensation of Israel, age of the incarnation. During the period of time while Jesus Christ was walking the earth, from his baptism to his ascension. This is a unique age within the overall stewardship of Israel, the dispensation of Israel. Fasting was inappropriate. See, this, the Savior is here. The Messiah is here. The King is here. And as Jesus Christ says now, the bridegroom is here. This is a time for celebration. This is not a time for mourning. The statement is made in all three gospel accounts. Matthew 9, 15, part A. Mark 2, 19. Luke 5, 34. It was inappropriate. I can read any of these. I'll just read the Luke 1, Luke 5. Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? It's interesting how they're attempting to impose something on uh, the disciples that was actually voluntary to begin with. Fasting has always been voluntary. At least originally that's how it was designed. And now they're going to impose it. They're going to make them fast. They're going to take something that's voluntary and make it involuntary and make them fast. And yet, making them fast in a in a setting or in a context that is totally inappropriate? Age of the Incarnation. One of the things... Let's see if I can do it from here. It may not let me do it. I may have to... Uh, I'm not sure if I can put two slideshows at the same time. Let's see. Maybe it will. Huh. I can do two slideshows at the same time. How about that? All right. God the Father's grace eternal plan in the ages. The dispensations from Alpha to Omega. Okay. Including the dispensation of Israel. I think a lot of times we don't pay attention to the different ages within their stewardship. Their stewardship began when God called Abraham and said, Abraham. And the, and the descendants of Abraham went forth as God's stewards. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the twelve tribes of Jacob, and so forth. That was their stewardship. Okay. Now, between Abraham and Moses, they weren't under law. Right? Because the law didn't come until Moses. So for that period of time, we call that the age of promise. All right, we call this here the age of promise. It's still, switch colors, it's still the uh, Jewish stewardship, but it's, no, it's not under law, it's under promise. Okay. Now, when Moses gave the law, the stewardship didn't change. The, the, the Jewish people were still responsible as stewards of God's manifold grace, as the recipients of the Scriptures, to proclaim the gospel to this lost and dying world, to minister to the Gentiles, and so forth. The, the, the stewardship was still Jewish, that is the dispensation of Israel, but it is now under different circumstances or different operating procedures. And so 
as we distinguish between a dispensation and an age, we can call that the dispensation of Israel, the age of law. Okay, different from the age of promise. They now have legal obligations to observe that the Jews didn't have during the age of promise. Okay. Now, what is not often considered is the unique circumstances that took place during the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That from the baptism, the public baptism of the Christ to his very crucifixion, resurrection and ascension, that period of time was unique. And there were conditions and circumstances that applied there that set it apart from other considerations, especially the ones under the law. Okay? Now, does that mean that he negated the law? Not at all. He did not come to neglect or to negate the law, but to fulfill it. See, something greater than the law was here. And he says so again and again. Something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than the Sabbath is here. He said the Lord of the Sabbath was here. And all of these times that the Pharisees kept coming into conflict because they kept thinking that Jesus was violating the law. He wasn't. Now, he was violating, in in many cases, he was violating their interpretation of the law, their perversion of the law, their uh, expression of the law, which was rabbinic Judaism. That was their expression of the law. They had their own control over the people based upon how they interpreted the Sabbath, for example. And when the Lord of the Sabbath showed up and didn't line up with their approach, we're back to that flawed logic again. Well, this is what we do. We're right. Therefore, what's wrong with you? Okay. And when the Lord of the Sabbath shows up and he wasn't submitting to their control, well, you're a heretic. You blaspheme. There's something wrong with you. You see how that whole flawed logic plays itself out. So this is what we're dealing with here, the age of the incarnation. And whereas fasting could take place here and fasting could take place here, okay, fasting has no place here, no place at all. There is yet another age coming, an age of tribulation. There is one week that is left unfulfilled in Daniel's 70-week prophecy, and that is, again, Jewish stewardship. And that will be an age where, yeah, there'll be some fasting. (laughs) There's going to be some hardship. There's going to be all kinds of fasting. And then obviously when the king comes, now there's feasting. Okay. Tremendous feasting during the millennial kingdom. Now, good. I'm glad I was able to put that up then. Didn't realize I could do two slideshows at the same time. So fasting was inappropriate for the dispensation of Israel, age of the incarnation. But it's going to be very appropriate once again. For difficult times of sadness, point six now in the outline, fasting will once again become appropriate for difficult times of sadness. And the Lord speaks of that in this immediate passage, but then we also have the Apostle Paul speaking of it as it relates to the dispensation of the church. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 26. Fasting will once again become appropriate For difficult times of sadness. And you will note that all the verse references are the immediate context of the ones you got under point five. In Matthew 9, it's verse 15b. In Mark 2, it's verse 20. In Luke 5, it's verse 35. 
fasting will once again become appropriate for difficult times of sadness. In other words, there is a time, just like there's a time to weep. There's a time to weep. Some believers think that if you have any sorrow at all ever, then something wrong with you. You're in emotional revolt. Get doctrine. Get over it. Right? No. Scripture says there's a time to weep. There's a legitimate place for mourning. See, it's just we mourn as those with hope, not as those without hope. First Thessalonians chapter 4. <laughs> Should I smash it? Is that a distraction to you? Okay. I shouldn't have even mentioned it. Now you're going to be watching a cockroach instead of listening to Bible class. In Matthew 9, you notice the very same verse, verse 15, mentions both of them. Verse 15a, Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? Then part B, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. The time will come. Likewise, in Mark, verse 19 is followed by verse 20 there in chapter 2. Same thing in Luke, verse 34 is followed by verse 35. So now, the question is rightly asked, well, what about the church age? What about when you and I live now in, in the dispensation of the church? Is fasting appropriate? Well, I think what we've been studying in 1 Corinthians lately has been pretty clear. This entire stewardship is called the present distress. This present distress. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 26 the church age is literally the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. The dispensation of the church is the period of greatest conflict of any former dispensation. We have the most spiritual equipment any stewardship has ever been given. We engage in direct conflict with principalities and powers, rulers and authorities. We don the spiritual armor. We do go forth in spiritual battle. And our stage is called the present distress, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 26. So are there times where fasting is appropriate? Sure. Are there times when we need to get serious about prayer? Absolutely. Point seven. The Lord then utilized the parable method of instruction to communicate truth. The Lord then utilized the parable method of instruction to communicate truth. This is the first time we've hit it in the Life of Christ series. There'll be many, many more coming up. But same thing in Matthew, same thing in Mark, same thing in Luke. After he answers their question with a question, after he spotlights how those days are coming, all right, after he does this. Uh, Randall, can you see if our visitor here needs some help with something? Would you please? appreciate it. She's out there in the hallway. I don't know what question she might have. After he answers the question, after he then highlights the distinction between what is going on now and what is about to happen, he follows it up with a parable. And that's the case in Matthew 9. We have verses 16 and 17. That's the same in Mark 2. We've got verses 21 and 22. And likewise here in Luke 5, we've got verses 36 through 39. He was also telling them a parable in verses 36 through 39. Now, why is he teaching in parables? This is the first time that we've, we've had a parable. And I want to spend some time with it. Um, 
And maybe the best way to do that is for the moment to join me over here in Matthew 13. Join me in Matthew 13. We'll get some information here. Matthew 13, the whole chapter is given over to parables, multiple parables. And uh, the parables are given and the parables are explained. But we have a key consideration here in verse 10. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? All right. So let's learn here and then take it back to Luke 5 and, and, and plug it in. And Jesus answered them to you. It has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So what do we have here? We have teaching that can go forth, and at the same time, it can be understood and not understood. The form that the parable takes enables it to go forth in that manner. To whoever, to them it has not been granted. Okay? In verse 13, therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now, this is beyond simply the aspect of the fact that without the Holy Spirit you can't understand anything, can you? Right? I mean, didn't we learn in 1 Corinthians that the natural man cannot accept the things of God, for they are spiritually discerned? That only the spiritual man can, can learn the things of the Spirit of God? Right. So that that's true for all Bible class. That's true for every spiritual communication. Only the spiritual, that is, those that are spiritually alive, regenerate, can apprehend spiritual truth. The unbeliever cannot. But in spite of that, now here is another aspect of what can be understood or not be understood. And this comes in terms of the parable method of instruction. Now. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For, now here's the explanation. Well, why, why was it given here and not given there? Whoever has, to him more shall be given. And he will have an abundance. Okay? Now think about the nature of um, having in terms of doctrine in terms of bible study in terms of a hunger for teaching believers that are humble that want to learn and want to grow what's god going to do to those believers he's going to give them even more are you hungry for teaching you're going to get all you can eat and more god's going to provide abundantly but whoever does not have consider an appetite for teaching an appreciation for the word of god even what he has shall be taken away from him. Okay? Now, this is in the context of teaching. We're going to come across this principle again later on when it comes in the context of rewards, talents that are entrusted. And a fellow that's given five talents and earns five more and he has ten, a fellow that's given one talent, he doesn't do anything with it, he buries it, and then he tries to hand that talent back. Okay? And that gets taken away and given to the one who has ten. So now he has 11, and this other guy has zero, because the one that he had, even that's taken away. So it's not just a matter of one with one, and one with five, and one with ten. The one with ten ends up with 11, because the, the chump with one, even that's taken away. It's given to the one with ten. And that is in a framework of eternal rewards. Okay, A little bit different than what we're dealing with here. Here we're dealing with Bible class. Here we're dealing with instruction. 
But it's the same concept. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Oftentimes in my opening prayer, I'm, I ask for what? I ask for eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. Because you can see without seeing. You can hear without hearing. You can take all of it without understanding. And that's not necessarily an aspect of spirituality versus carnality. It's not necessarily an aspect of, of um, a spiritual man versus a natural man. Because a believer can have ears and hear, but not hear. In other words, he's a spiritual man, but he's not hearing. Okay? And I hope we can follow up on this. So, in the parable now. Man, I've got three minutes to give you this parable. Or I've got next week. <laughs> what do you think? Cram it through in three minutes? Or pick it up next week? It really doesn't take long because it's the same parable. He was telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment, puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, uh, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Okay? And it's the same exact parable he gives in verse 37. It just changes the illustration. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled out and the skin will be ruined. It's the same parable. And uh, verse 38, but the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Yeah, we better come back to this next week. Verse 39, no one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. And that's a huge problem. That's a huge problem, particularly by believers that refuse to, to usher into the dispensation of grace. And they continue to function under law in any form. They're, they're insisting on old wine and it's, well, it's a problem. We'll have to deal with that. All right. Um, well, thought we'd get through it this week. It shouldn't take us long next week to go through this. It's a simple parable, but it'll be good to... Um, It'll be good to start with this one because there's a lot of parables coming up. And if we can grasp what, what happens in parables here, I think uh, we'll do ourselves a big favor for down the road. When we get to the kingdom of heaven parables, when we get to the other parables, I think it'll be good to do our homework now and really pave the way for things coming up. Any questions, anything before I close in prayer? Nope. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We just rejoice that we have the opportunity to, uh, to drink of the new wine, Father, to partake in grace and not be uh, enslaved to uh, the law, not be enslaved to what is obsolete and ready to pass away, not be uh, trapped by traditions and the teachings of men. Father, we just thank you for the newness of life. We thank you for the truth that sets us free. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.